Um, I will be arguing that uh, for worldview transformation to really happen, we need to combine both biblical hermeneutics and cultural hermeneutics. My paper is long, it's being distributed. I will read the introduction, then I will summarize some parts, and uh, the second part of my paper, I will read it, because that is the core of what I want to present this evening. As getting the Bible and the social location of the gospel recipients. The God of the Bible is a missionary God. He is determined to redeem sinful humanity. If we rightly view uh, biblical narrative, we will see that uh, there are an incontrovertible evidence of the God who refused to forsake his rebellious creation, who refused to give up, who was and is determined to redeem and restore fallen creation to his original design. And because God is a missionary God, sometimes it will appear to be unorthodox according to our definition of orthodoxy. I like what uh, Manuel Rodriguez says. He argues that instead of totally uprooting Israel from its ancient Near Eastern cultural environment, sometimes God took over what was not Israelite and adapted it to the theocracy. When I read that, I said, wow. From this perspective, I, have, I want to address three questions tonight. The first one, why will the omnipotent and omniscient God take into consideration the less than perfect human con contextual framework in the process of revealing his word? And second, because of the interplay of influences between divine revelation and human context. Should biblical scholars also recognize that a person's situatedness in culture, race, gender, class, history, shape the way they understand and interpret scripture? And finally, should the social locatedness of receptors of the gospel be given due consideration in the process of biblical in interpretation? This paper seeks to first establish that there are scriptural evidences that God took into consideration the social locations of the recipients of his revelation and used their existing cultural modes in the process of revealing himself to them. Then, I will argue that for the Bible to impact the lives of its hearers and transform their worldviews, its interpretation and application also need to take into consideration the social location of both the interpreters and their intended audiences. Although I believe that the Bible in its totality should be the final authoritative and all-sufficient source of truth and practice in every human context, thus sitting in judgment over cultures and calling all of them to change, I remain convinced that as humans, our ontological and epistemological perspective on the world and our own lived experiences is affected by the context we live in. When I was surveying the Bible, I came across three examples of how God in his revelation had an interplay with human context. The first one is the use of human language in revealing 
himself. We have several passages in the Bible where it appears that God was audibly speaking to people because there's no hint in the Bible that God used some kind of heavenly languages to speak audibly to those people. It can be assumed that he used their heart language. So I assume that when he first appeared to Abraham and spoke to him audibly, he used Akkadian because that was what was familiar to them. But generation later, when he spoke to the descendant of Abraham, he used Hebrew because that was the language then. And in the New Testament, the means of communication that was uh, rampant was Greek. Then I conclude this section by saying that because human languages are part of human cultures, in using human languages to convey his revelation, God entered his receptors, social location, and adjusted his revelation to their cultural context so that they could understand him and act in accordance with his will. And second, what really intrigued me was my study of Genesis 15, God and Abraham. Before that, let me put it in context. In the ancient Near East, entering into covenant was everywhere. And one way of sealing a covenant was for people to come together, bring animals, cut them in, in two, put the, uh, the, side, uh, uh, the carcasses side by side and hold their hand and walk through. To mean that if anyone betrays the agreement, his fate will be like that of those animals. And when we start reading Genesis 15, we see God coming into discussion of Abraham, and automatically Abraham starts talking about, hey, I'm going, I'm old, I'm afraid that I will not have an offspring. God takes me outside and tells him, see, the stars, your offspring will be as numerous. The Bible says that it was counted as righteousness to Abraham, but what intrigued me again, if you read further, Abraham asked God, how will I really know? And if you read the new commentary that was released uh, by uh, Jacques Ducan, he said that when Abraham asked that question, I'm on page three now, uh, he, he was asking God to give him evidences, solid evidences that what he just promised will come true. And what is amazing is that God does not get mad at Abraham. But if you read in Genesis 15 verse 9, God tells Abraham to bring a set of animals and Abraham brought them, cut them into two, put them side by side, and the, in the evening a torch passes there. If you read biblical commentators, they agree that that was God signing that covenant with Abraham. Because Abraham was a human being, God did not want to involve him there because that covenant depended on the faithfulness of God. It was as if God was swearing by himself. If you notice, after that, Abraham never doubted God's ability, God's ability again to give him an offspring because God spoke to him in the language he could understand. Um, uh, the second paragraph of page four, uh, the second to the last line there. Therefore, 
Abraham took to heart God's commitment to follow through on his promises. He had received the divine surety that all that was promised will be fulfilled. God reached out to him in a way that impacted his worldview. This whole covenant ceremony is a testimony that to fulfill his redemptive purposes on behalf of humans, God is willing and able to come down into their sphere. The last example I found was uh, John 1, 1 and 14, God in human form, the incarnation of Jesus. And if you uh, read scholars on uh, the incarnation, especially when it uh, comes to worldly transformation and mission, they will point out that by entering the first century Jewish social location through the incarnation of Jesus, God revealed himself in the fullest possible way in human terms. This was the ultimate expression of the immanence of the transcendent God who without ceasing to be holy entered into the sinful world to take human beings holy, to make human beings holy and to enable them to participate in his glory. Christ's incarnation, I conclude by saying, Christ's incarnation in the first century Jewish cultural setting is a perfect model of the interplay between the gospel and human context without uh, uh, diluting the value of the gospel. God in the incarnation did not stay aloof from humanity in his effort to save them. Instead, he bridged the gap by taking human nature, experience, human sorrows and temptation within the context of human culture. By so doing, Christ reformulated the concept of God's love so that people could understand it, experience it, and be transformed by its power. So how do we relate that one now to social location and biblical interpretation? Let's go to page six. Social location refers to the sum total of human experiences that contribute to shape a person's overall perspective on life. These human experiences not only include a person's physical location in age, gender, race, and community, but also the moral, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual atmosphere they live in, their social class, marital status, political conviction, language, nationality, history, and many other things. There's therefore no human life that is lived outside of a concrete social location. The various factors of a social location contribute to make each individual in society distinctive from others. As members of a generation live through the same historical period and share similar experiences, a generation could even be considered as a social location of thoughts. This position in a social system creates in each person a specific lens through which a vision of life and social order is expressed, experienced, and explored. Thus, this specific lens or worldview equips each person with a unique perception of how things work, what is real, where things belong, and how they fit together. With time, 
This perception, which may have been cognitive at the beginning, becomes ingrained in a person to the point of influencing also the affective and evaluative dimension of their daily life. In a sense, a person's social location programs them to believe and live in a certain way. In 2004, Mark Allen Powell published the results of his research on the impact of social location on the reading and interpretation of scripture. He did the first phase in the US and in Russia. It, is, it was simple. He asked his student, seminary student, to take their Bibles open to Luke 15, read the story of the prodigal son, close it, and recount it as accurately as they could. He noticed something shocking. In the US, all the American students, almost all, forgot about verse 14, the famine. But when he did the experiment in Russia, 84% of the students remembered verse 14, the famine. In America, 100% of students remembered the prodigal son's squandering of his wealth. In Russia, only 34% mentioned that. Why? Famine was not a problem in the US. But then in Russia, many or almost all of the students that live in St. Petersburg interacted on a daily basis with survivors of the German seas on the city of 1941 that killed 670,000 people. They died of famine. They had this. So when they were reading the Bible, it was important for them. But that was not important for the American students because that was not a problem for them. Wealth was a problem for them. This experiment is a good illustration of the unavoidable reality of a person's social location's impact on their reading and interpretation of scripture. For some time, the inclusion of uh, cultural hermeneutics has been neglected in interpreting the Bible, but now there's a growing number of scholars that are calling our attention to it. Let me read for some, uh, from some. One is saying that, our uh, that all readings of scripture are located reading that cannot escape, I'm on page eight, cannot escape their own cultural and historical limitation. In other words, as you read the Bible, I hear some people say that I don't interpret the Bible, I read, uh, I, I take the Bible as it reads. I say, no, the Bible does not read. You read it. <laughs> you read it. And you read it from a certain perspective. And Kevin Van, Van Hooser that presented here uh, yesterday uh, said something important. Let me read it to you. Interpretation is not an exact science. Understanding be it of God, works of art, ourselves, or others, is both messier and more provisional than explanation that work with causal laws. Why should this be so? Three reasons. Number one, 
because what we are trying to understand is often singular and unique. Second, because meaning is a matter of seeing the part in relation to larger holes of which finite human interpreters have only partial glimpses. And three, because interpreters often have vested interest for seeing in one way rather than another and lack the requisite virtues to see things as they really are quorum deal before God. And uh, I, the point here is that uh, among us fallen and limited human beings, there's nothing such as pure theology. There's only contextual theology. Because all of us are woven in a particular historical place, and that context will always shape our interpretation of the Bible. Because of our ingrained worldviews with their prejudices and the fact that we know now only in part, it will be basically naive to think that a human being could approach scripture from a totally neutral or absolute objective point of view. To this effect, Michael Barham points to something that I really appreciated. Every interpretation comes from a place. To the extent that no interpreter can fully avoid the influences of personal history, gender, ethnicity, race, nationality, place of residence, education, occupation, political perspective, economic status, religious views or commitment, and so forth. As we read the biblical text, therefore, what we see, hear, and value is inevitably colored by our own situation, experiences, characteristics, and presupposition. To me, this means that every biblical interpreter's understanding of a biblical text is influenced by the subjectivity of his or her own social location. Biblical interpreters, therefore, need the humility to acknowledge that the established categories they use to make sense of a text may sometimes blind them from discovering the true meaning and implication of that text. The reality of the impact of social location on the reading and understanding of scripture also means that biblical scholars need to make some effort to exegete their intended reader's social location with the same rigor they apply to the exegesis of biblical texts. Effective biblical interpretation is not built only around the ability to do good biblical exegesis. If theology is really centered in the process of reflecting on and applying biblical truth to a particular situation, the exegesis of the context in which the biblical text is to be applied cannot be ignored as separated from the process of doing theology. It is only by associating the exegesis of a particular social location to the exegesis of biblical text that our theology will be both equipped to answer questions that our parishioners are asking and to confront different cultures with God's revelation in a way they can respond to and make intelligent decisions in favor of that revelation. Next paragraph. Since the whole of scripture has a missional, missional thrust, 
Its interpretation and application need to be patterned after how God's self-disclosure encountered people within their specific social location. I like uh, this quote from Glenn Rogers. He says, God interacted with Abraham, Israel, and the prophets, with Jesus, with the apostles, and with every one of us, including you and me, not in some otherworldly or heavenly context, but in the context of this material world, a world of uh, human culture. God uses human culture as a vehicle for interaction and communication with humans because human culture is the only context in which human can communicate. This is not because God is limited. It is because humans are limited. Human culture is the only frame of reference humans have. If God wants to communicate with humans, it must be within the framework of human culture. And I ask the question, and so what? Next paragraph towards a transformative biblical interpretation. How do we approach this so that people's worldview can be transformed? How can the word of God be faithfully presented in a pluralistic age for the worldview of its hearers to be transformed? For this to happen, I reaffirm that besides engaging in a rigorous exegesis of cultural uh, biblical texts, Biblical scholars must also strive to achieve some degree of proficiency in cultural literacy, as this will help them understand the various factors affecting their intended audiences, reading and interpretation of the Bible, the reasons behind those factors, and how to respond in ways that are biblically faithful and contextually relevant, so that those readers can make intelligence life-changing decision in favor of the gospel. They must also endeavor to recover biblical interpretation from a mere credo and academic reading of the Bible and refocus it on helping their readers grow as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Biblical scholars need not be content with only rightly articulating truth as it is found in the Bible. Since the ultimate truth is in the person of Jesus and not in mere concept, biblical scholars must care about suggesting practical ways of growing in Christ. By bridging the gap between lecture and pew, their hearers and readers will know how the Bible relates to their daily life and hopefully be equipped to negotiate their way carefully following the one way of Jesus Christ through a variety of cultural byways. Faithful biblical interpretation should be far more than simply presenting biblical truth, no matter how crucial that truth is. Although I agree that before surrendering their life to Christ, people need a certain level of understanding of scriptural truth and the requirement of being Christ's disciples, I remain convinced that cognitive knowledge alone is not enough to transform a person's worldview. Jesus himself spent an important part of his ministry in teaching truth. His intention was for his hearers to grow in their understanding of the person and will of God in order to, for them to have an informed and better relation with him. However, he taught the truth as knowledge grounded in a relationship and experience with God rather than a mere cognitive understanding of the word of God. 
He always challenged his hearers, especially his disciples, to apply their intellectual knowledge to their day-to-day -day experiences. Hearing and accepting cognitively the truth as it is in the Bible is not the end of the Christian experience. After consenting to the truth that the Bible teaches, believers need to be constantly challenged to pay close attention to their experiential growth in Christ. Since a loyal allegiance to Jesus is a hallmark of being his disciples, one of the dangers in biblical interpretation is to make truth something that is merely discussed rather than something that practically relates to believers' daily experiences and moves them into allegiance to Christ. The only truth that is able to transform people's worldview and set them free in Christ is an experienced truth and not just an intellectual one. Providing contextually relevant application of biblical truth to life situations should be an important goal of faithful, transformative biblical interpretation. The end goal of faithful biblical interpretation should therefore not be the mere production of well-written academic essays or commentaries. The end goal of faithful biblical scholarship should be to give strong root to the never-changing word of God within the various contexts of our ever-changing world. The understanding of biblical truth must be cognitive, effective, and evaluative for it to have a life-changing impact on its hearers. It needs to make practical application of each passage to the individual life in order to bring the hearers and readers to salvation and an ever closer personal relationship with God. Our own dean, Dr. Moscala, sums the, uh, up the goal of biblical interpretation this way, and I love it. The raison d'etre of biblical interpretation is not primarily to understand biblical history, though this is crucial, or to know doctrine, even though doctrine is indispensable for an intelligent following of Christ. The primary reason to interpret the Bible is to be engaged in a personal relationship with the loving and holy Lord and to grow in him, in the experiential knowledge of his character and saving action. And I, I say this, unless biblical scholars set this as their ultimate goal, their work will remain incomplete. My conclusion, I have about two minutes. Scripture narrates the various missionary endeavors undertaken by God to redeem sinful humanity. Because humans are all influenced and limited by the assumptions of their social location, God takes into consideration various aspects of their less than perfect contextual frame of reference in the process of revealing his word so that they can understand his revelation and meaningfully relate to him. With this interplay between divine revelations and the social location of the recipient of those revelations as a precedent, biblical scholars who care about the spiritual growth of their audiences must be well acquainted not only with the principles and methods for interpreting the Bible, but also with the principles and methods for interpreting the culture of their audiences. They also need to strive 
to recover biblical hermeneutics from a mere cradle and academic reading of the Bible and refocus it on helping their readers grow as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ but faith, by faithfully reading and applying the word of God to their daily Christian life, living, whatever their situatedness in life. This approach to hermeneutics as the ministry of the never-changing word of God to the ever-changing world will help biblical scholars understand the various factors that affect their audiences, reading and interpretation of the Bible, the reason behind those factors and how to respond to them in a way that is faithful to the Bible and relevant to the context. I am convicted that only this approach to biblical scholarship, which enhances biblical faithfulness in a pluralistic context as the potential to lead to discipleship and worldview transformation. Thank you. Now it's time